With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Reaching F1 is every driver's dream. They arrive full of optimism, determined to write their names in the record books. In 2001, a new batch of hopefuls made their debuts. Fernando Alonso, Kimi Raikkonen, Juan Pablo Montoya, and Enrique Bernoldi. Four drivers, four very different careers. Bernoldi's F1 journey may not have followed the glittering path of the drivers he made his debut with, but there was rarely a dull moment. At the very start, he and Raikkonen were involved in a shootout for the second Sauber seat, a battle that ultimately changed the course of F1 history. I think was the time when Red Bull wanted to be more involved. They didn't want to be just sponsor. It was a lot of clashes regarding that. Sauber didn't want to lose the control of the team. Uh, I was coming along and I was one of the reasons for the splitting and uh, also Sauber that they were inclined to favor Kimi. While Raikkonen went on to become world champion, Bernoldi's Formula One career stalled before he'd really got going. January 2003, I'm jobless at the age of 23, 24. And I realized I don't have a helmet. I don't have a overall. After two seasons in Formula One racing, I was sitting in my apartment in January, jobless, without a helmet, without anything. I could not even do my job. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Enrique Bernoldi entered Formula One in 2001 with Arrows. By August 2002, he'd driven his last race, scoring no world championship points from 28 starts. But that far from tells the whole story of a tumultuous and dramatic two years for the Brazilian. He was a Red Bull junior driver. Sauber's decision to favour Kimi Raikkonen in 2001 influenced Red Bull's decision to stop sponsoring the Swiss team and eventually establish their own racing outfit. And the rest, as they say, is history. And after holding up title contender David Coulthard for more than 30 laps at the 2001 Monaco Grand Prix with a defensive masterclass, then McLaren boss Ron Dennis threatened to end Enrique's career. But just 14 months later, it was over anyway. As Arrows were forced to withdraw during the 2002 season due to serious financial problems. Now a driver steward with the FIA, Enrique is very honest when reflecting on why he didn't succeed in Formula One. He talks openly about the pivotal moments in his career, why he and teammate Jos Verstappen fell out, how a very young Max Verstappen needed his urgent help in the motorhome one day, the difficulties of being a Brazilian trying to follow in the footsteps of Ayrton Senna, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's great to have you on the podcast, Enrique. Thank you for your time. How are you? I'm good, Tom. I'm really happy to be here with you, and I heard about the show, and it's, it's great. And of course, motor racing is the Bernoldi family business, because not only has there been your career, 
I now hear that your son Becco is going again and he's karting in Italy, is that right? He started last year, a little bit late, but he's doing good, he's progressing, he's racing in California, he's racing in national levels in the United States, he's doing great and one races, one races in the wet, which I like, one races in the dry. And now uh, we're going to take a shot in Italy to see how he does against the most competitive kids of his age and, and so on. Well, Enrique, let's talk about your own Formula One career now. I have so many memories of you. And the first one is a photograph that's taken on the grid in Melbourne in 2001 before your first race. And it's you alongside the other debutants, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen this picture of Juan Pablo Montoya, Fernando Alonso and Kimi Raikkonen, the four of you. And I just think, I look at it every now and again, I just think there, right there is talent. Can you remember that picture being taken? Yeah, yes, I can. I can remember that. And uh, that was a special day for me, you know, your first race in Formula 1, you'll never forget. I didn't forget any of, the, of those. wasn't many. I wish there were more, but I remember that day and it was... Um, I believe I was beside uh, Fernando in the, in the picture. He looks so young. I was young too. <laughs> <laughs> we are all young and, you know, I think that's a great picture. I think that's a very, uh, let's say, good rookie class. It was I a great say. rookie class. That's the yeah. rookie team, the rookie class of 2001. Montoya was the senior guy, I guess, coming in that year, having won the IndyCar title and then he comes to Williams. Um, how supportive was he of, of you? Not at all. Was he, a, was he a friend? Was he? I he... knew him, yes. I knew him. Uh, I, knew, I knew Fernando because I raced with him in 2000. Uh, I knew Kimi because we fought for a seat at Sauber. I knew all of them. But uh, let's say at those days, friendship between drivers were, were not very common, I would say. You ask about Juan Pablo if he was supportive. I, I think he, for him also, he was a rookie going against uh, Ralph. He was, I think he was looking for his own career and yeah, as I was. It's really interesting, I think, that you say perhaps friendships between drivers back then wasn't that common because I think the atmosphere in the paddock has changed. You know, you now see drivers playing paddle together and hanging out together. I don't think it happened back then. I don't remember it happening. It was difficult, I think. Also, we didn't have social media. So, you know, if somebody was meeting somebody else on, on, on their house, uh, we couldn't know about it, but uh, I think it was a little bit more rivalry at that time. I think it was a little bit, um, I wouldn't say hostile, but there is a saying in Brazil that we have. We say, I bring my friends to the racetrack. I don't make friends to the racetrack. So I think it was a little bit this way, you know? I think, well, probably still applies, right? <laughs> um, but let's talk, you mentioned Kimi Raikkonen and Sauber, because I wanted to ask how ready for Formula One did you feel when you made that debut with Arrows in Melbourne 2001? You'd had a, a good junior career. I want to ask you about that a little bit later, but you tested for Sauber for the year 2000. Yeah. And, and it seems like it was a straight fight between you and Kimi for, for the seat. Yes, yes. It was, uh, I think, I, I was ready to race at that time. I have done uh, two years in 2000. My second year, I was a uh, test driver for Sauber. Compared to those days, I did a lot of testing <laughs> because I would say between 12 to 15 days testing. I knew the car. I could be fast on the car. And I think I was ready to go to the big show. You know, uh, I felt ready. I spoke with Red Bull and we all felt ready. And um, that's how it was. Why do you think it didn't happen? It was not like a real straight fight between me and Raikkonen. I think it was the time when Red Bull wanted to be more involved. They didn't want to be just sponsor. 
you know, you see how they are today. And I think was a lot of clashes regarding that. Sauber didn't want to lose the control of the team. Uh, I was coming along and I think I just was in the ballpark and, and I was one of the reasons, but I don't think I was the main reason for the splitting. And uh, also Sauber that day, when we had a, a test, I think were inclined to favor Kimi. Were you at the Mugello test? Yes. No, I had a, I had a test uh, the month before. I felt that the tension started to rise between uh, mid-season. I was sort of like going against Mika Salo all the time. You know, I was pushing, of course. I wanted to do a time for myself. Red Bull wanted me to push. Sometimes I think that uh, was this sort of like atmosphere about a shootout between the two drivers. So I started to go a lot against Mika Salo. I went against Denise in Mugello the month before. In September, I, had, I was supposed to do a three days test only myself which would be the last test for the team before the end of the season. And Kimi showed up at the test, which was not on the schedule. And then we start sharing the car. And, uh, you know, in Mugello, September, mid-September in Italy, you drive in the morning, you have a second and a half, two seconds in your pocket. You drive in the afternoon, the track is lower. I drove first day in the morning, he drove in the afternoon. Second day we swap. I had more, well, a lot more experience than him. So even on the second day driving in the afternoon, I, I was still faster. And then the third day, he drove in the morning with a bunch of new tires. I just drove in the afternoon and we had a, a very, very close time. And uh, I feel like stupid saying like, oh, I beat it, Kimi or so on because the guy's a world champion. And I was not. It's like, uh, but I think Sauber was inclined to, to push for him. What did Peter Sauber say to you? He didn't say anything to me because he was not at the other day on the test. The conversations were going more between Helmut Marko and him. I felt like that uh, I wouldn't belong in the team. You end up at Arrows. Yeah. Just tell us about the journey that took you there. When we knew we, I couldn't get in Sauber, um, I got invited by Prost to do a two-day test in Barcelona. Me, I was Oriol Serva, a Serbia, supposed to be Pisonia there. Alizi was doing the reference time and so on. Sarazan was at, at the test too, and I ended up being the fastest. And uh, I could be driving the Prost for the next season. We were really, really close, but Mazzacani came with a big budget from PSN, from Argentina, and um, they couldn't say no to the sponsorship. So they offered me a test drive contract, which I would get in the car on the race four, because they had a, a sort of like a performance agreement with him, that what I was told. After three races, they could keep the sponsorship and replace him in case he wasn't matching the performance clause, which they told me that was going to happen. I was really close from that seat, but the problem in that situation was that the third race was in Brazil, and Red Bull wanted me to be in the third race. Also for, the, for him, being an Argentinian driver, the third race was very important, so they wouldn't back out on the third race, and the, that was the deal breaker, because Red Bull wanted me on the third race, taking the car on the third race, and I don't know if we should be saying this. <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't happen for that reason. Doesn't and I guess have, what yeah. your Red Bull money was Red Bull Brazil, was it? No, 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 it was uh, always Helmut. Helmut. Yeah, Mat okay. Matashitz, yes, yeah. was Red Bull, Red Bull, yes. Okay, so that door closes. That you door must, were you feeling a bit down about life at this point? I was depressed. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, I was at Kitzbühel, ski race. I was sitting in a, in a table with Ralf Schumacher. I was hearing from Marco that they would take me to Minardi to race alongside Alonso. Minardi at the time wasn't that great. 
So Ralph was a little bit like joking about <laughs> you're going to drive me nerdy, why you know, doing all, all those funny, not funny jokes about it. And I, I was feeling a little bit depressed, of course. I didn't want to go for the third year in Formula 3000 because I, I felt that if I would do my third year, I would be sort of like a recycled driver and I would not make it to Formula 1. Everything was going away for me to drive in the 2001 season. And if I would have done another season in 3000, I just felt like also Red Bull felt that this will just disappear in the air. So uh, in that ski race, Tom Walkinshaw was there with Daniele Audeto. I spoke with them and nothing because they had a contract with De La Rosa and with Jos. So we chat about stuff, but not about me joining the team. And a day later, uh, actually, I'm in Graz in Austria because I used to live there because I was a Red Bull driver. And Dr. Marco calls me and says, where are you? You have to go to the airport straight away. You will drive for Arrows next year. But don't tell anyone when you get there. Wow. <laughs> it was actually And the deal a... was done in Kitzbühel between Helmut Marco and Tom Walkinshaw? Uh, the signing was done um, two days later. In, uh, I went to Leefield, I did a seat fitting. I was supposed to be the new test driver for the engineers, for the mechanics and so on. I slept the night before going to, I slept at Audeto's house and we took Tom's uh, plane at 6 a.m., flew to Salzburg. We signed a contract at Salzburg airport in the conference room. Uh, Matashitz and Helmut were waiting there and the lawyers and uh, we signed a contract there. And that day, Tom flies me straight away to Barcelona and I get on the racetrack at 4 p.m. The track closes at 5. At 4.45, I'm in the car, and I did, like, some two runs. So What a relief for you. I'm also fascinated that Dietrich Mateschitz was there for the signing of the contract. Yes. The big chief of Red Bull got involved at that level. I always had a very good relationship with him. He was really supportive because I was the first one. So they were not that big and, and uh, he was actually quite involved. He'd been to my Formula 3000 races when I was in pole position in Barcelona. He was on the grid beside my, my car in a Formula 3000 grid, which is not a Formula 1 grid. And uh, actually my first Formula 1 test with Sauber, uh, in 1999 in the money course, which was sort of a little bit like a, a real test for me because we had a very bad season in 99 in front of 3000. So it was sort of like, mm, is the driver, is the car, is the driver, is the car. I was beating my teammates, but maybe they felt my teammates weren't good enough. So reference wasn't there. And actually when I went to drive the Formula 1 for the first time was not because they wanted, I think they wanted to test me. And in that day, Matashis flew to watch my first Formula 1 test. That's how close we were. We need to go back to the 1998 Formula 3 season then. As you might know, uh, I won a lot of races, but I lost the championship. To another Brazilian, Mario yeah. Haberfeld. In my opinion, a championship that I should never lost. I was a faster guy, but I did too many mistakes. I did too many mistakes. I, I was a little bit very mature. I wanted to prove that I could win every single race. Either I was winning or crashing and Sometimes people crash me out, it was not my fault. So imagine if you, if you win seven races in Formula, British Formula 3. Uh, you win a race at Marlboro Masters. You win a race at Macau. You have some options, right? At the end of the year. And I had some options. I had some invitations from Junior McLaren. I had invitations. I could have signed with, with uh, Petrobras to drive uh, for Supernova in 2000, which they were always pushing for me. And one day I get a phone call at home in Oxford. And was Helmut Marko, and he said, uh, could you send me your CV? 
I didn't know who he was. Honestly, um, maybe my ignorance that, but I just wrote Helmut Marko, his name, and I, I forgot that. So the guy, Gianfranco de Bellis, which was helping me, like sort of like managing my career uh, at the time, comes to watch my last race in Silverson, and he's going to sleep in my house, and he sees the name Helmut Marko, and he said, why is this name here? And I said, well, yes, he called me. I, didn't, I had no idea with who I'm talking to. And he said, well, do you know who this guy was? I said, no, he's a doctor, right? <laughs> and and uh, yeah, so then they got in contact and um, we went to Graz and I had, uh, I had like the offer from Petrobras. We decided, oh, listen, Red Bull is giving you a path. If you drive well, which you have been doing this year, so they will bring you to Formula One because it was all written. What an extraordinary story. You'd expect young drivers to be all over Red Bull, yeah. you know, throwing letters at them, saying, please yeah. sponsor me, and yet he came to you. Yes, yes. That's how and then when did you first meet Dietrich Mateschitz? I went to Graz. I met Helmut. I got the offer. I had to go to Macau to race Formula 3 um, uh, in the following week. So before going to Macau, I went to Austria, to Salzburg, and I went to the, to the Red Bull office uh, headquarters at the time. That day I met Didi, and uh, he was there on my signing, and um, actually Helmut said to me, um, why are we signing you? And I said, because I won many races, I thought. I won the, two years before, I won the European Championship in front of Renault. I won many races, uh, Zandvoort, race Macau, and so on and so on. And he said, no. Not because of that. I'm signing you because the way you lost. I could never sign a driver that runs away from a fight. And I can always polish a fast driver. I can never speed up a slow one. And that was, uh, yeah, that stayed with me. And uh, that's how I raced with him. Like, uh, like uh, I had green light, so I could really push. How frustrating for you. You know, we've already discussed the, the Sauber chance. We've discussed the Prost chance. I mean, had Alpha Tauri existed back then, that's your ticket straight in. You were paving um, the way for all of the other young drivers, I suppose. Yes, that can be said, yes. It's, uh, the problem is that uh, they had nowhere to take me. Don't think that I, I earned that f for free and was a free ticket because surviving with Dr. Marco and the way he is taught me a lot. But also I was under pressure all the time. I had always people coming. He would always take us to a, to a track called Pannonia Ring in Hungary. On my Formula 2000, I've been put in the car with Thomas Enge, Christian Albers, Andrea Lotera, always new drivers coming and always the excuse was, oh, we're gonna have a, a second driver. But actually they were testing me, you know. If I wouldn't have outperformed them, the chance wouldn't be there for me, you know. It is a ruthless, it ruthless is. program, yes. isn't it? It is, yes. But I learned a lot from my days in Austria. For sure. They, they had a full budget and the results wasn't, for some reason, were not coming. You know, we could have won Barcelona, could have won Nürburgring, was leading. The championship would have been different, you know. I wouldn't be a rookie that gets to Formula 1 after finishing 14 or 15 in the championship. I would have been third, the worst. So things would have looked differently and also for, for everyone. And they need to be secure that I was fast. So I've been put it to test uh, many times. And those test days made my career. I took my chances. I was good under pressure and that's how I made it. 
So, Arrows, you've tested the car at, at Barcelona, and it's all happened very, very quickly. Another big figure in your career is Tom Walkinshaw, the boss of Arrows at the time. How did you rub along with him? I remember speaking with Helmut, and we, we were happy because Arrows the year before was faster, was a better car than Sauber. You know, we end up in a faster car. We were, we were happy. We we're not like disappointed, like, oh, didn't happen with Sauber. Now we, we are going to a second or, or third option. We are going to something better, we thought. Wokisho was, was actually a little, he was nice with me, but uh, of course I was his driver, but he was also a bit ruthless, you know, as everybody knows. The sport is like that. But he, he was a former driver himself. Yes. Did that was. help in the way that he was able to talk to you and get the best out of you? He was he was a racer, for sure. Tom was a racer. And he, you know, he always kept me under pressure. He, we didn't talk much. Uh, it was not like so much like uh, him helping or supporting me, you know, uh, because I was, I was a Red Bull driver also. So I had Helmut, I had uh, all the support from the other side. He was more like a team owner. When I wouldn't perform, uh, he would be pissed. Uh, I had a closer relationship with Daniel Aldeto, which was his number two in the team. We still talk to the day now and uh, have contact. And uh, that was um, that's how it was. You know, it was a little bit like I had like sort of like two bosses. Well, I mean, <laughs> Daniele, Formula One legend from Ferrari yeah. team manager back in the, in the 70s. Yes. And, I mean, he had so much experience to offer you. It must have been hard for you to get your feet under the table because you retired from, I think, eight of the opening 10 races in 2001. For a rookie, for a young guy coming in, really hard to get your head around the car and a Formula One and the races. And Somehow we were fast in winter testing. And I, we had very big expectations for, for the beginning of the season. Uh, we thought being top 10, but we got to Australia and the music changed completely. Apart that the car, the performance was not quite the same as the winter testing. Maybe we were driving light compared to the others. The reliability of the car, the Easy Attack engine was bringing a lot of problems. The car was braking all the time, hydraulic problems. It was difficult to get the, the, the ultimate result, which is the race was very difficult because I was almost never there uh, to finish the race. Sometimes I was retiring in lap three, lap two. So I really focused, how can I do something? How can I show myself? And we got to the conclusion that would be in qualifying, going against my teammate. And that's where I focused quite a lot. Also, uh, you have to remember to score a point at that time was so difficult. You had to be top six, not top ten anymore. Like, if it would have been top 10, I would have scored quite a few times points. I remember I finished, um, I think, eight in Hockenheim. And my engineer was so pissed. He was like, how come you don't catch the guy? And so but I think it was Button. He's driving a, a Renault. And the car is completely different. And I finished eight, and my engineer wouldn't look to my face. You know, it was, it was, it was even harder. Now I see somebody getting a 10th place, and it looks like a carnival in the team, you know? celebrations and so on and so on and so on so it was really hard it's a very demanding environment formula one did that element surprise you um no i think um i had enough experience i've been racing for five years in europe for three years i did support races for Loreno, european championship and then two years in 3000 
been driving the Sauber for the whole year, uh, the year before. I, I knew what to expect. It's always, always a little bit when you're racing, the pressure is is humongous. It's is really, really, is really, really high when you become a Formula One driver. Every day you put your hand, you have to kill a lion, you know. Well, your teammate in 2001 was Jos Verstappen, <laughs> yes. father of Max. Yes. I'm sure most people listening are aware of that. But how quick was Jos? Jos was a type of driver that actually uh, the way he drove, I liked because I like aggressive drivers. He was very, very good in lap one. He was very aggressive at the start. Our driving styles wasn't, wasn't very similar. Uh, I was much smoother with, with, the, with the steering, with the brakes, with the throttle. He was a very good driver in the race i would say how fast maybe i was faster because i beat him on the qualifiers you know i think also i learned a lot from him uh on the on lap one he was really good did you have a good relationship at the beginning yes oh no, no what happened <laughs> <laughs> we are we are we are friends now right <laughs> so, so if we, you see him in the paddock now you'll have a chat yes, yes i have a chat do you talk about that year we had a dinner uh at stumble 2021 was like sort of like the old guys, me at the table, me, David Coulthard and Mark Weber and him. And we were drinking some wine and of course, you know, laughs, people start laughing and, you know, and so on. So we had some chats, was, uh, you know, but it's so far behind. We were not friends from mid-season on. What happened mid-season? The tip of the iceberg that why we sort of like uh, the last drop that things start to blow away is uh, that in Austria, he crashed on Saturday morning, free practice. When you drive for a small team, you're competing mainly against your teammate. So I'm driving and I see the orange car there on, on the barriers or on the gravel. And I go like, sort of like, yes, <laughs> it's an advantage for me being in, in three hours later in the, for qualifying. So as soon as I stop, I'm giving the feedback to my engineer. My engineer said, oh, so uh, get out of the car. I thought they would change something under my seat. So once I get out of the car, I see Yoas with the helmet just beside my car. And I look and he takes my car. And the second free practice from Saturday morning, we had two practice. He does like the last half an hour in my car. And I was pissed. Comes to the qualifying I, and I out-qualified him. I was sort of like happy about that. In many course, he blows the engine on Saturday morning and they give my car to him. And I'm watching from the motorhome. And he's driving my car for the whole Saturday morning. How did the team explain this? They explained that uh, he was there with the team many years, that he was the number one driver, and that's how it goes. Also in, in, in Monaco, uh, 2001, a race that everybody talks about, uh, I had to let him pass. They came in the radio and said, let Jos by. Uh, I passed him on the lap one, and uh, lap two, I was getting radio already, let Jos by. And we still had 76 laps to go. Rivality starts to raise. You now he gets my car, but I'm the rookie. I qualified ahead of him, even though he gets my car. So we start to clash a little bit. And um, my race engineer was Italian. My engine engineer was Laurent Mackies. And it was his first year in Formula One. And he's fluent in Italian. And my data engineer, he was from Belgium, but he was fluent in Italian. So once the, the rivality starts to raise in the team, we only spoke Italian because... Yoss and his engineer wouldn't understand a word what we are saying. And many times I got, <laughs> I got calls on the radio from Mike Coughlin, for example, saying, Enrique, this is a British team. We speak English. 
And so <laughs> you reply in Italian. <laughs> so we were talking about the setup or talking about what we're gonna do and about what we're gonna try to do to beat him, always in Italian so they wouldn't understand. Look, while we're talking about Verstappen, I do want to ask, did you meet Max back then? Because yes. he would have been about four years old. Yes, I met him, yes. Uh, I met him many times, many races. Max was a small boy, and uh, actually once it was a quite a funny story. I had to he goes by my room in the motorhome just before the race, and he goes to the restroom, and he got stuck on the toilet. I had to... Max he, did. Yeah, he had a little boot, plastic boot, child boot, and he, he got stuck in the, in the toilet. I could hear some noises, and, I, I'm, and he's not coming out. And I, I go in, and, and actually I took him, boot stayed. <laughs> And I gave him to Sophie, to his mum. What a great story. And, yeah. and then look where we are now. Max Verstappen yeah. dominating Formula 1. How impressed have you been by Max, just while we're talking about him? Very impressed, yes. I mean, can we compare him to Michael Schumacher, who was dominating the sport in your era? I think uh, Max is only 25 and he has achieved... I think he passed Senna on the, on the wins already. So it's... Uh, I'm sure he, Max will stand up there with the greats of all time. But not I just believe. in terms of statistics. Take Put those to one side yes. at the minute. When you watch his qualifying it's lap at Suzuka, for example, how many drivers in the history of Formula 1 could do that? I think he's up there with Lewis, with Senna, with uh, Michael. He's really, really fast. And also, also what I like the most about him is the mindset of domination against his, his opponents. It's like... They go to, to try to block him or trying to, to pass him and feels like they know in their heads they're going to lose. He will come up ahead. And the way he just breaks so late and get to the side of the guy and the guy can do anything. It's just he's there coming from such a long way back. And he did that many times. He did that how, when he won the championship the first time. He did that uh, to many, many drivers. And, and I think his mindset, his domination... It's really, really impressive. Not a problem for Vinaldi as far as keeping Fulbard back, because yet again, and this is the 44th lap out of 78, and still David Fulbard, despite his horsepower advantage, despite his superior experience, despite, frankly, his superior ability, can do nothing about Vinaldi. You mentioned Monaco 2001, and I did want to ask you about that race because for listeners who can't remember or don't know about it, David Coulthard was on pole position. He stalls on the grid, is forced to start at the back, and he comes up behind the arrows of Enrique Bernoulli and cannot get past. You keep him at bay for, what is it, 35 laps? I mean... 44. How? 44. Uh, I, I lap on lap 44. By the time he, Yoss was behind me for the first five laps. So I think it, it felt, it felt an oh. eternity for me. <laughs> if either was 44 or 35, I, until my pit stop on lap 44, that felt like, <laughs> like eternity well, to hold him back. How do you reflect on that race? You know, you know what I take from that race, Tom? It's like um, everybody say, oh, it was your best race in Formula 1. We, that was so great and so on and so on. You hold a guy which had a two and a half second faster car than you. And yes, the track also helped me, you know. It's not that I'm holding him in Monza or, or in, uh, in Hockenheim. But uh, what I think as a compliment for me is that I was under a lot of pressure. 
I had no power steering on my car. That thing was heavy. And I had a car, the, the post seater going all over my mirrors. And I didn't do a mistake. I think that that's what I, I take as a, as a positive point for me. Also, it was really difficult to manage how to let Schumacher, Rubens, Ralph, the leaders lap us without making him pass. So I always had to plan. Honestly, I wasn't planning to hold him. When I saw him, I, I had to let Jos pass. So I was pissed. And then I see Coulter on, on the back. And I'm thinking, oh, no, two laps, one lap, he will pass. He tried twice at Mirabeau. And I let, I let the space. But I think he was not convinced. Maybe, you know, I, I was a rookie. Maybe he thought, oh, this guy would just turn on me, you know, something like that. And I saw him and I wouldn't turn on him. And, and by doing that, by letting him the space, I touched the, the marbles and I almost crashed twice at Mirabeau. And that sort of like pissed me off. I said, well, I let open twice and I almost crashed. Now I'm not going to let open anymore. And the, the more laps pass by, more arrows start to come on, on the radio and say, yes, let's go, let's go, keep him, keep him. So sort of like I grew up, I grow, I like the, the, the feeling growing to me to, to fight against him. And um, yes, that's how, how he was. What did David say to you after the race? He didn't say anything to me. It was a little bit done by the media, Ron Dennis and Norbert Haug. They said stuff to me. So did they come and find you afterwards? Uh, my car broke. <laughs> my broke. My car broke on the after the finish. Of the race broke just before the tunnel. On, well, on the slowdown lap. Yeah, on the slowdown. Back to the my car broke just before before the tunnel. I had no drink bottle on the on the car because on the formation lap, the, the tube was touching my 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 mouth was hurting. So I pushed a little bit and slide out of the helmet. So uh, I had cooter behind for 44 laps. I had no power steering, I had no drink bottle after a, after a Monaco race, so I was completely exhausted. And I have the car break down at the end, uh, before, just before the tunnel, so the medical car brings me back to the pits and I'm, I go to the, to the scrutiny, to the scales. And you know, by the order of the team, so it was Ferrari, McLaren, I have to cross in front of their pits and, I ha and I'm dressed in an orange, orange overall. So, and I'm thinking just, I hope nobody sees me. I hope nobody sees me. I just want to walk by and go and get to two arrows. That's what I was thinking in my head. And I'm passing by walking quite fast, <laughs> holding my helmet. And I heard like, oi, 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 like that. I look it's Ron Dennis and I go like, oh my God. Like, I remember watching him being Senna's boss. Senna was my idol and Senna's boss. And I, like, I had so much respect for him. And he's like, the way he's calling me, I knew he was pissed. And I said, oh, here we go now. He said, um, what do you think you were doing today? And I said, I had to say, I'm racing, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what I was doing. And he said, yeah, well, if you don't learn good manners to race, because racing the championship leader for 14th place, which was at the beginning of the, and then for the 12th place, because people were retiring. So we started fighting, I think I was maybe 16. By the end of the fight, maybe we were like, 10. I don't know. So he goes like fighting for with the championship leader for and post seater for this position is not racing. And if you don't learn good manners, the good way of racing or good manners, something like that, I have power enough to finish your career tomorrow. How did that make you feel? I said, I'm sorry, but uh, if you lost the race today, it's not my fault. It's because the cars couldn't start on the formation lap. And then came Norbert Haug and Norbert Haug was screaming half in German, half in, in English. I couldn't barely understand what he was saying. And I just left. 
So when you had dinner with DC and Jos and Mark Webber in Istanbul a couple yeah. of years ago, did you talk about it then to David? Yes, I spoke to David, yes. But actually, I never had, a, had a, any confrontation with David. We spoke uh, the following test, which was in Manicurs. He came and, talk, and spoke to me and he said, I understand you are fighting for your career. You are in the back of the, the grid. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you had some radio calls to hold me back behind. I understand. I said... He's a racer. Yeah. He, I think he would have done the same. And if you remember... Uh, the following race was in Canada, and who gets called for the press conference? Me, David, of course, Michael, and Jax. Ron Dennis didn't show up, and I'm sitting like, and I remember that I'm sitting, and the and first questions to Enrique Bernardi. I'm thinking, I'm beside Michael Schumacher, David Coulter, Jax Villeneuve. Why the questions for me? And the question was about Monaco, and. Michael took the microphone and didn't let me answer. And he said, you, enough of you guys. You, he did what he had to do. And I hope if he gets in that situation again, he does it again. What a nice thing for him to do. Yeah. Did it mean a lot to you? Of course, it meant a lot to me. I, I, got a, I got a text from him in that night and say, you did completely right. So you got a text from Michael yeah. on the Sunday evening yeah. of Monaco saying you'd done the right yes. thing. Yes. I had a, a, a sort of relationship with him because during my, my Red Bull years in Austria, Ralph lived in Salzburg. And, you know, imagine we were like two drivers. There's not much to do in Salzburg. So we met quite often. We went skiing and I went to his mountain house and so on, so on. So I had a relationship with the family through Ralph in those days. And yes, that was a good, very good gesture from him. I really enjoyed that. And uh, that meant a lot to me. It was a good support. Actually, uh, that night I had dinner with, with Didi Mataschitz in Monaco and he was very, very supportive, very uh, excited about the race and how things go, you know. And, and yes, from the people which were around me, I got the right, the great, right energy about that. And I'm imagining Tom Walkinshaw was saying similar things as well. Tom Walkinshaw was happy, yes. I think he went to talk to Ron after the race. Did you tell Tom yes. what Ron had told you? Yes. Yes. I, I, when I got back to the, <laughs> when I got back to the to the pits, like my engineers were like, how oh, what took you so long? You know, I said, well, the car broke and blah blah blah. Saying so said plus Ron Dennis just told me that, and then the word spread, and then he came. Did Ron really say that to you? I said yes, and then I think he went to talk to to Ron. I think Tom defended me. I think he said, uh, the day you pay you pay my drivers, you tell them what to do. <laughs> Quite a good reply, to be fair. Yeah. Now, this was, of course, pre-social media. But what kind of vibe did you get from the fans about what you'd done that day? It was like, a, you know, I'm, I'm Brazilian, right? And um, I would say that uh, I got always a lot more support in Europe, either in Austria or in Italy, sometimes in England also, because I spent two years in England, than in Brazil. Being Brazilian is, uh, is hard. Because we had Senna, we had Fittipaldi, we had Nelson. And, you know, it's like either you are a hero or you are sort of like a zero, you know. I always felt that way. And uh, I got a lot of more support, like, uh, let's say, going to the following race. Actually, I would get more requests for autographs, for pictures. I started to get a little bit more popular after that, that race. You being Brazilian is an interesting point because that year there were five... Brazilians, not at every race, yeah. but there were five Brazilians on the grid that year. Yes. Barrichello's the senior guy, obviously, and then there, there was you and Tarzan Marquez and Ricardo Zonta and, and Luciano, Luciano Berti. Berti yes. Was there a great rivalry 
between you? I think not with Rubens because he drives a Ferrari. Sure. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. you can't be a rival. If you drive an Aeros, you can't be a, <laughs> a rival. Somebody <laughs> that drives a Ferrari. We're just in the same race, by, but we're not really racing the same race, you know. From all those guys, I had biggest rivalry with Luciano Burti because he raced with, uh, against me in Formula 3. And we had some crashes and he pushed me off uh, twice. And uh, we had some disagreements and his teammate ended up winning the championship, which if he pushed me to help the team, I think he did the worst for him because his teammate ended up winning and he, it wasn't him, you know. We always had this, this sort of rivalry. And once we went to Formula One, he was driving first Jaguar and then Prost. And then uh, we were racing the same race, let's say. Let's bring it on to 2002 now. So your second year with Arrows in Formula One, the Asia Tech engine is gone, replaced by a Cosworth. Jos Verstappen gone, replaced by Heinz Harold Frentzen. How good was that package? It was definitely an upgrade. First time I drove the car, I felt as soon as coming, as soon as I came out of the pits in Valencia, uh, times that we were doing next year. At, at that time, also because we had tire war. So tires were developing so much faster, with times improving so much faster from race to race. So um, I came out and first run, I was over a second faster than my previous ever fastest lap at Valencia. So I felt the car straight away better. Engine was better, but uh, how much better? I only finished two races. A lot of problems again and um, reliability problems. And I think potentially we had a way better car. We were overall a better team. Heinz Harold Frentzen, how much more of a challenging team was he? Very fast. He was really, really fast. Sam Michael um, came on the pod a few months back and he said the two fastest drivers he ever worked with were Lewis Hamilton and Heinz Harold Frentzen. Can you relate to that? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> because Hans Harold was really fast. You know, the, the being faster than Jos wasn't happening in the second year. Always in a team like Arrows, when a new front wing, a new barge board comes, always comes for one car. This, the second car is always a little bit behind on upgrades. That's to be fair to, to, to my point, but Hans Harald was really, really fast in qualifying. I think he's the opposite of Jos. Jos was really good at start, really aggressive, good at the race. Frentzen was more uh, really fast in qualifying. Not so aggressive at the start, not so aggressive in a fight. But if he has to do the race pace, he would be really, really fast. So different drivers. And, uh, but for sure, um, Hans Harald was. I think from the guys that I compare myself on the data my whole career, I think he was the fastest guy that I ever was beside me in a car, including Sauber, including BR Honda. And he was very technical as well. Very, yes. Did you learn stuff from him? Yes, he had a, a driving style which was uh, very, very smooth. And um, I, learned a, I learned a little bit from, from setting up the car from him. Actually, the way he spoke with the engineers was, was very technical. He, he used to have a, a, a camera, a small camera in his pocket. And in the grade, he used to go and take pictures of the cars, of the other cars. And he would come after the race and say, look, this how the suspension of this car is designed and so on and so on. And he was trying to sort of like engineer design the car by That's himself. Yes. That's great intel. He yes. was a spy photographer. <laughs> yes, he had that little camera and he was taking, he was like, look how that the, that, that the wishbone is designed. Look how that, we need to do that. We need to do that. And 
Actually, it's a quite a funny comment. So I drive the, the, the first time, the 2002 Aeros car. I drove the first day, Valencia. So I drove. My comments were like, everything better, better engine, better aero, better things. We are faster, everything good. Hans Harald comes day two, and I'm out of the car. So he does the first couple of runs. <laughs> so everybody goes to the, the motorhome. My Coughlin is there, Sergio Rinland, engineer, so on. And go like, so what do you think of the car? And he say, the car is a dog. We thought we had like a rocket, you know, compared to what we had last year. And we go like, oh. He said like, there is a mid-corner understeer. You have to apply so much steering. There is a snap oversteer. The rear wing, <laughs> the rear wing is stalling. I never drove anything like that in my life. <laughs> what did Sergio and Mike say? Their jaws were like, huh? You see, that was the difference of a, of a driver that drove for big teams that had, I think he had over 10 years experience in Formula One. I was just on my second year and I drove cars which were quite limited. So for me, the arrows was not too bad. And he comes in and say the car is a dog. <laughs> <laughs> But of course, it all goes wrong mid-season, doesn't it? The team runs out of money and it's forced to stop. At what point in the year were you aware that there were serious problems? Once we stopped testing, uh, it was quite... We didn't do much during the winter testing. Uh, I got sick. I was overtrained. I was training in the mountains in Austria and uh, I went to a test in, in, in Barcelona and after... 15 laps, I was completely gone, exhausted. And they took me to the doctor and I was overtrained. So I had to stop for two weeks. So actually before going to Melbourne that year, I had very, very little mileage. I did a 30 laps in Valencia, 15 laps in Barcelona, and I did a full day in Silverstone International. And that's it, before going to my first race. And we didn't have the sources to do much testing, much less than the year before. And and also, I was getting these comments from Red Bull. They can't show to be better, and there is no development going on. And I think that was the, the lack of money. It was quite early in the season. We were lacking some updates, upgrades. We would have sometimes only pieces for one car, not enough testing. And the troubles become public at Manicor at the French Grand Prix when both you and Heinz Harald go out. You go out to qualify, but with the intention of not qualifying. I mean, such a confusing message for a racing driver, right? Yeah, that was um, made clear for us. Don't put the car on the grid. That was an order. We had to fake. We started the lap fast, pushing, and on the last sector, I slowed down quite a lot. Hans Harald slowed down a little bit less. We made sure that times were not in the 107%. And then did you think that was the last time you were going to be driving that car? Was it a surprise to then actually get to the German Grand Prix? That was after the was after Silverstone. The problem started in Silverstone. Remember, we didn't do Friday, so we only did Saturday. But Silverstone, we had a good pace. Last part of the race, I think it was P5, P6. I could, I would have scored points there. And unfortunately, the car broke again. Drive shaft, which is a part that never breaks in a Formula One car, very rarely. So when arrows shut down, how confident were you of getting back on the grid? I was confident that I could find a, a seat. I had a chance to go to Jordan. It was a little bit of a bad timing, really bad timing. As I said, I was prepared to go to, to get to Formula One on the driving 
on the pressure point of view. I was not prepared by the legal stuff. I wasn't prepared for the um, politics involved. And the bad timing was that Eros went bankrupt. I still had another year of contract with them. So I was locked in in a contract because my contract was going to be a three years contract and they disappeared after two. So legally I was under contract. I didn't took any measures to make me free. I didn't hire a lawyer or anything. And I, in my mind, I was quite naive. I thought like, oh, they're gone. So it should be no problem. So I was actually in a very advanced discussion with Jordan until this point knocks the door and, oh, sort of they can't hire me. Also, Red Bull was, because my contract with Red Bull was finishing that year too. So I was more or less like out in the woods without a dog, you know. I tried to do everything myself. And that's where I went, uh, literally that's what made me, I think, be out of the grid. Was Diddy Matashitz not able to help you? I think he was able to help me. I think that always has been said that after a while, I should go with my own legs. And as they had nowhere to put me, they doors were closed with Sauber. Arrows, which we put a lot of faith and we put a lot of effort, is gone. To try to go to a third team, for me, I think maybe wouldn't sound very, very good, you know, understand? Did you know at this point that Mataschitz was thinking about having his own team? No, I didn't know that. After talking with a couple of people, uh, many, many years, I found out that that was always been his dream. Well, he achieved it. I sort of let the politics and the um, negotiations and uh, the legal stuff out of my mind. I always try to focus on the on the performance, on the racing. And that, I think, was a problem that I was a little bit immature on that. And that was a problem that I ended up suffering. If I would maybe realize my mistake, how big everything could become, maybe we'd have approached in a different way. Well, there is one more chapter, though, isn't there? Which is BAR, where you became a test driver. Yes. How did that opportunity come about? Did you know David Richards, who was running the team at the time? Yes, I knew him. Yes. But uh, who made that? happened was who helped me was Didier Coton, Hackney's manager and Olivier Panis manager at the time too. Well, I, I met Didier in Monaco by coincidence in a restaurant January 2003. I'm jobless at age of 23, 24. Well, <laughs> that was that feeling like, well, I feel like I almost putting a, a sticker in my car. Well, I've been a Formula One driver for two years <laughs> and now I'm jobless. So, it was like, no, I'm joking. It was like a really, really bad feeling. And uh, I honestly didn't know what to do. I, actually, I was one, one, one day I was in Monaco in my apartment and I realized I don't have a helmet. I don't have a overall. So I called Bell, which always provided me the helmets. And I said, well, I, I might need a helmet to test. Can you guys send me a helmet? Yes, of course, they, they send me the helmet. So I said... Let's start, first thing, I should get a helmet, right? Then I called uh, PJ from Alpine Star. I said, can, can you, mate, can you give me a, a, a overall? Yes, of course, like shoes, overall. So, okay, at least I had the overall, the shoes, the gloves, and the helmet. But I was in this situation that after two seasons in Formula 1 racing, I was sitting in my apartment in January, jobless, without a helmet, without anything. I could not even do my job. Actually, it's kind of sad that it had come to that, right? 
very sad. Then I meet Didier in a restaurant and he goes like, hey, what's what's going on? What's what's happening with you? And I said, nothing is happening with me. Literally nothing. I say, do you want to talk? He said, yeah, sure. I said, uh, can you get me back to Formula One? And I got a straight answer. He said, oh, you are four or five months too late. If we would have be having this conversation while you were still racing, probably I could have kept you on the grid. Now you're out. I don't know if you can get you in. That's so interesting. So it's much easier to keep you on the grid if you're there rather than if you're not there trying to force your way back in. He made that clear to me. It's always difficult to come back. It's difficult to make it. It's more difficult to come back for sure. So Didier goes straight, like says like, I don't know, but you need to do something. You need to, to drive something because nobody will say, oh, Enrique, come do a test or come and race for me if you are sitting in your home in Monaco and doesn't matter you promise them that you're fit, you need to be racing. So I said, okay, I have the helmet, I have the suit, I have the... And he said, and I only do Formula One. It has to be a single-seater, which is fast. So I said, I cannot go to Formula 3000. I, so I, I called Jaime Algersuari, and I, which was the president of a World Series. And I said, can you find me a team? Yes, no problem. I find you a team. So I was just an extra Formula One driver, so it was good for him. One week later, he calls me, oh, you can go to that team. They will pay you this amount of money. Everything is, I, I took care of Michelin, we'll, give the, we'll provide the tires to your car. I will provide the entry fees and uh, we're going to get help from, from Nissan and so on. And the team is willing to pay you, so welcome. So I started driving and the team actually was a very nice team. It was like a, called JD. Uh, they became good friends of mine. They were not that good, I have to say. We won uh, out of those two seasons that I did with them. I won five races, always on the wet. Could never win on the dry, which says a lot. The car wasn't that good. But I had fun, you know, finished third in the championship. And one day, DJ comes to me and he calls me and uh, he said, well, what are you going to be in about a month time? I said, I don't know, no plans. He said, okay, so you're going to go to BAR Honda. You go, uh, you're going to do a... Fitness assessment, if you are fit, they will consider you putting you in the car for three days because I think Button has a event clash that I think had to be in Japan or something like that. Sato, I think, was uh, injured and so would be me and, uh, and Davidson testing for three days in Jerez. And they, apparently, the um, Mark Ellis, which was the chief testing engineer, called my former uh, Formula One engineer and apparently they put a good word and they, they put me in the car. And Didier said, if, if you do well in these three days, I might get something out of it. And how did it go? Well, I drove the rest of 2004 and all 2005 testing for them. Did over 22,000 kilometers. And this is far and away the best team you ever raced for. The best car I ever drove. Really, really good car. And uh, the engine was so powerful, was like a rocket. And that was... No doubt the fastest car I ever drove in my life. Was there ever talk of a race seat there? Well, they had Jensen doing really good, and they have Takuma also doing well, and Honda, so wouldn't be an opening there. But we tried to, to be there and to stay there. Maybe something would open up. But as I said, it's always difficult to come back, you know. 
talking of your fitness, wasn't there one test at Paul Ricard where you did 176 laps in a single day? 181. 181 was yeah. it? Okay. The yes. Iron Man. Yes. That I, I was I was quite fit uh, at the time. I think because I was very bitter, I was I was I felt that I deserved it better than how things went up with Arrow. So I actually I became fitter in the time when I was jobless compared to the time when I was actually racing. And I think because of that, I think it was one of the reasons why I got in the car and I and they start calling me, calling me, and they offer me a test drive contract. And uh, yes, so that's how how it started. I remember uh, talking about the performance of the car. I qualified in 2002 at Silverstone. I did 22.0 with six or eight kilos of fuel in the car. You had fuel only for one lap. On my fourth set of tire, I did 22.0. And I remember I telling to my engineer, I said, I think I didn't leave anything on the table. I think I, no mistake. I think that's it. And with BR Honda, I started... I drove that one year and a half later. I haven't sat in a Formula One car since Hockenheim last race with Arrows and has been past one year and a half. And I start with 60 kilos of fuel in the car. The last thing I want is to crash the car on, on the first run. So taking really cautious, like not going to the curbs, like maybe a meter and the exit of the exits. And I remember, I look on my first outlap and my first timing lap and I do 20.6. And I 1. was like, 1.4 seconds faster, faster driving like a grandmother <laughs> on my first run. And with 60 kilos more on the car, and I just saw how you see how the difference on teams and performance, engine, everything. First time I drove power steering in my life. How much did that help? It helps a lot, yes. Do you lose any feel? Honestly, I like it because I had a very smooth style of driving. Hated understeer. If you give me a car that understeer, Anyone can go faster than me. I hate understeer. And therefore, my car was always very pointy. And I always used very little uh, amount of uh, steering input. And having the, the, the power steering, I didn't lose any, any feeling because as I was, and was never applying much, much steering lock. So just a little bit of uh, steering. So for me, it worked perfectly. How do you reflect on Formula One? Does it frustrate you with the missed opportunities and that you didn't get the chance to show what you were made of? Uh, you know, it's, um, of course, I would like to have done better. Of course, I I got frustrated. I got sad for uh, quite some time. Almost has passed 20 years and I, I think differently. Also, I did mistakes. When I was inside the car, I gave 110, 120% all the time. I really gave everything while sitting in the car. Was I a complete driver? No. You know, I, I, I could have look into more details even my fitness my mental preparation to be better you know things that i and i see that i could have done better i didn't do at the time so inside the car i think i was good outside the car not that good and these are all lessons that you can pass on tobacco your son yes you know you know what i, what I tell him i tell you, you don't need to to be good where i was good you don't need to win the things that I won. Just don't do the mistakes that I did. Probably almost there because I did many. <laughs> so wise. So wise, Enrique. But of course, you also stay in touch with Formula One now through being a driver's steward. Yeah. Do you enjoy that? I like that, yes. I like it. Uh, of course, if I could be a Formula One driver again on my 20s, of course, I would love that. But I'm on my 40s. I'm out of shape to drive that car. So it's not that I go there and I look 
and I think, oh, I wish I would be here. This is past for me, you know? So that's why I can go, I can enjoy, I can do my job, I can see friends, I can see people from the past. And I'm doing something that I understand that I, I did my whole life, so I enjoy it. If I would be still young and, and still bitter to drive, maybe I wouldn't enjoy it because I would feel like, oh, I want to be racing. Well, look, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. <laughs> thank you, Tom. I love this chat with Enrique. He was so candid and so enlightening about both his career and Formula One at the time. His battle with Kimi Raikkonen for the Sauber seat, the insights into Verstappen and Frentzen. It took me back to the early 2000s like they were yesterday. And who can forget Monaco 2001 when he kept DC at bay for half the race. It was a defensive masterclass. And what about Enrique's post-race encounter with Ron Dennis? Sounds like it got pretty spicy, didn't it? how I'd love to get Ron's memories of that day 20 years on. Enrique, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. And yours was a racing career that deserved so much more. I'll see you at a race again soon. And I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Enrique as well. What did you make of what he had to say and how different would his career have been had he got the Sauber seat instead of Raikkonen? Let me know through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on X and you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in after last week's episode with Liam Lawson. Pretty much all of your messages agreed on one thing. Liam deserves a race seat in Formula One. Let's start with this from John Lewis in Australia. Thank you for the interview with Liam. He was as mature and impressive as his driving. Although I'm an Aussie, I can't wait for Liam to have a permanent Formula One drive. Well, I'm agreed with you there, John, and thank you for the message. Next up, Joseph Clark. Hi Tom, I was there watching Liam's first race in the Toyota Racing Series at Highlands and it was incredible to see him win on debut. For all the race categories Liam's raced in at 21, it reminds me of Bruce McLaren saying, life is measured in achievement, not in years alone. A future Kiwi Formula One star in the making. Well, I love that Bruce McLaren quote, Joseph. And there's no doubt that Liam has achieved a lot in his racing career to date and how much more is there to come. Let's hear from Tommy Hughes next. A lovely Beyond the Grid. I hope this episode serves as a bookmark for the future of Liam's career as something we can look back on in years to come in his Formula One career. It's also nice to hear someone with a level head about his development and inspiring the younger generation to not give up on their dreams. Well, it's good to hear from you, Tommy. And yes, Liam is an inspiration, be in no doubt about that. And finally, let's go to John Van Keeken. Hey, Tom, fantastic interview with Liam. Thank you. He will definitely get a ride after 2024, preferably with Red Bull, but he will get a ride. What he did in the five weeks available to him, especially in that first week at Zandvoort, got all the teams interested. And what a great kid too. John, thank you very much for the note. And oh, to know what future promises are in Liam's Red Bull contract. Look, we'll leave it there for messages this week, but thank you to everyone who wrote in. And don't forget to send in your thoughts about Enrique Bernoldi in time for next week's show. I will, of course, be back next week myself with another great guest from the world of Formula One. In the meantime, why not have a listen to the latest episode of F1 Nation in which Natalie Pinkham, Esteban Gutierrez and myself review a thrilling Mexico City Grand Prix. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.